Oh, Father, this is a tremendous truth about your greatness and your glory. An old hymn, but oh, how we love to sing about your greatness. Because you indeed are great beyond all of our ability to to understand and to comprehend how awesome and glorious you are. And yet you have called us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And you have been good. Oh, Father, you have been so good. Even this week, with such difficulty and tragedy in the lives, the lives of our dear friends, and yet you are proving yourself faithful, and so we praise you. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to trust you no matter what the difficulty, and specifically now in this passage of Scripture, Lord, in our marriages, I pray that all of our hope would lie in your precious promises of future grace, that you will give us everything that we need for life and godliness in the next moment, in the next temptation, in the next difficulty, all to the praise of your glorious grace. Be honored now, Father. Instruct us, teach us, protect us from error so that the Lord Jesus would be magnified in this church today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and by God's grace, I hope to finish this chapter today, but we do need to read the second two-thirds of this chapter this morning. And so if you'll stand with me, we're going to start with verse 10, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is um, verse um, 40. And so don't try to read along with me, but follow along in your Bible, 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, beginning with verse 10. But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who is an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For now they are holy, but now they are, uh, for otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each to in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you were able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. Yes, such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as those who have none, and those who weep as those who did not weep, and those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who, are, who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, what she may 
uh, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, because un, uh, uh, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided that this is in his heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter to marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to remarry as she, to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she will remain as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I know that's a, an incredibly long portion of Scripture for me to cover in the next 30, 35 minutes but by God's grace, we'll get there. We're not going to cover every point, and there are some things that you may hope to hear this morning that I may not discuss. But this morning, I do hope to finish the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage as it's presented to us, both by Jesus in the Gospels and here in 1 Corinthians 7. And I also want to offer you, on behalf of the elders, a one-page paper written by the elders several years ago, I think back in 2003, that details our understanding of what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and how it should be applied in certain specific cases. In fact, there's a stack of those papers right over here, and it may be on our website for download. If it's not, we'll rectify that. For this morning, however, I want simply to pick up where we left off last week. We discovered in our study together that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, is, is responding to questions he received from the church of Corinth. They had questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and a lot of other questions. But 1 Corinthians 7 is his response to those questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Along the way, he also reveals his understanding of biblical singleness and how we should view being single. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that today. But he does mention it a couple of times, and so it's important Last week, we looked at Paul's answers to the first three questions, and so let's review them just briefly. Question number one, verses one through seven, is physical intimacy in marriage wrong? Is sex within marriage wrong? And Paul answers an emphatic no. In fact, it is commanded by God as a marital duty to one's spouse. It is not optional. It's foundational. It's fundamental to the marriage covenant. Secondly, verses eight and nine, can divorce people remarry? And we learn that there is a term for un, that the term for unmarried here is in reference to people who uh, had been divorced, presumably on biblical grounds. Or these are people who divorced before they were born again, and now they're faced with complications being unmarried, but now they're a child of God, and they can't even go back and remarry the person that they were married to before because that person's an unbeliever, and they're not allowed to marry unless it's in the Lord. For what fellowship has darkness with light, etc. And so what about them? Can they remarry? And the Apostle Paul is saying, yes, they can remarry in the Lord. And question number three is, can unhappily people, uh, unhappily married people, can they divorce just because they're not happy with their marriages? Verses 10 and 11, to this, Paul reiterates what Jesus taught, and he said, no, people who are unhappily married are not permitted to divorce. Rather, they need to offer their spouse what we talked about last week in terms of biblical tough love. They need to offer biblical, not, not psychological, not selfish tough love, but true biblical tough love. That is, they are to love their husband or wife in a biblical manner, even when it is very tough to do so. As we saw from First Peter this last week, this is exactly what Jesus did. And it's what we're called to do as well, because our marriages are supposed to be a picture of Jesus's relationship with the church. We 
are supposed to live in such a way that shows the world what God is like. What is Christ like? What is the gospel like? And there is no relationship that is better suited on earth to demonstrate all of those things than the marriage relationship. And so when the marriage gets tough, um, the marriage partners need to exercise tough love in the sense that they are willing to endure much so that Christ would be glorified in their marriage. And that brings us to question number four, where we pick up today. And this is verses 12 and 13. Let me just read them briefly. And Paul writes, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, he must not send her husband away. She must not send her husband away. Now, understand that sometimes when two unbelievers marry, by God's grace, one of them will eventually come to know the Lord. It happens. happens frequently. And then what? And it becomes sometimes a pretty major problem. What do we do now? I mean, we were both on kind of on the same page, living for our stomach and our glands, living for our flesh, living to party, living to get drunk, living to you know, pursue wealth or whatever it is. And now one of them is living by a different rule book. One of them has now set his affections on Christ and desires to live in obedience to his word and be a part of God's people. And the unbeliever in the marriage um, doesn't understand that at all. No doubt there were some who were saying, and this is different, but no doubt some were, were saying that now you're a Christian, uh, what you really need to get is a new spouse. What you really need to get is a new husband or a new wife. What fellowship is like with darkness? What fellowship is there between a believer and an unbeliever? What fellowship is there between Christ and Belial? And so here's what you do. You're supposed to share the four spiritual laws with your unbelieving spouse, leave a tract on this pillow, do whatever you can to bring him to Christ. And if he's unwilling, you know, drop that turkey. Find yourself a new husband. Find yourself a new wife. That's the Christian thing to do. On the other hand, the opposite might be true. A husband might come to know the Lord and suddenly he begins turning his back on the old lifestyle of partying. And a wife may say, you know what? I don't want any part of that religion stuff. Either forget your religion or I'm out of here. And then she leaves. What then? And so Paul gives very clear instruction. And here is what he says. Again, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. You're not allowed to just send him away. You're not allowed to divorce. And look at verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, in such cases but God has called us to peace. And here's what happens sometimes when a marriage goes bad, when a marriage goes sour. What happens is the wife, who so desperately wants to stay married, starts to compromise. And she, she doesn't want to live in a godly manner because that will alienate her husband. And so she quits living in a godly manner because she's more interested in staying married than she is at pleasing Christ. And that's wrong. And so what we counsel people to do is this. You follow hard after God. And God will use that. And one of two things will happen. Either the person will get saved, your, your husband or your wife will come to know Christ because of your faithful witness and showing the fruit of the Spirit in that home, even though he may be a lousy husband or she may be a wayward wife or whatever it is, God may use you to bring that unbelieving spouse to Christ through your godliness. Or that godliness may cause your husband or your wife to say, I can't be married to you, and he may leave. But either way, your, your state of misery is going to change. It's probably going to change. But if you continue to live in your compromised state, 
You're going to get what you've always got. And that's not honoring to the Lord. And that's not good for your husband or your wife. And that's not good for you. And so the answer is this. Be a godly man. Be a godly woman. And trust God for the outcome of your marriage. That's the way you should be living anyway. Just keep living like that. And let God do what God intends to do. Don't nag your husband. Don't get crazy about evangelistic tools. Don't give him Christian videos to watch. You just be a godly wife. You just be God's kind of man in the household, you men, if you have an unbelieving wife, and let God handle that person's salvation. And don't think for a minute that staying with an unbelieving spouse in some way is going to corrupt you. That's not what this is about. This is not about you keeping pure now that you're a believer when you find yourself married to an unbeliever. Listen, here's what God does. Whenever there's a believer in the household, he pours out blessing upon that believer. And guess what happens to everybody else in the the household? It spills over into their lives. You got an unbelieving husband, guess what's going to happen? He's going to start reaping the blessing of having a godly wife. And he might like it. It happens. And it may be the very instrument that brings him to God. That's what happened with Charlie and Mary Jean, right? Charlie's given his testimony here. This is what brought one of our elders to Christ. When his wife came to know the Lord and she started acting like a godly woman and he started reaping the benefit and it gave credibility to the gospel and he thought, hey, Maybe I should look into this. And God gloriously saved him, not because she compromised, but because she was resolved to be a godly wife. It's not as though you're going to be corrupted. Rather, to the contrary, you're living to be godly. What's going to happen is the blessing that God pours out on you is going to be poured out on your your husband and on your children Look at verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What's he saying? He's not saying that your unbelieving husband is going to get saved because you got saved, or that your children are going to be are now in the covenant, as some would say, because you're saved. That's not the kind of sanctification he's talking about. To sanctify means to take something and set it apart because it's a wonderful, precious thing to you. You know what? Of all the books in my library and all the books in my house, this one goes with me wherever I go. This one. This one right here. I love this book. I have sanctified this book in my heart. Burn all of my other books. Leave me with this one and I'll still be happy. It's like taking a precious piece of china. We've got some china in our house that belong, I think, to my wife's grandmother. And you know what? We don't keep it up with the other dishes because the little kids, when they need a dish, they jump up and they grab what they can and pull it down. And, uh, and sometimes everything comes down. You know, the saying in our household is whatever hits the floor explodes. And so we don't keep our antique dishes and our priceless treasures up there. And one of the places we keep those little dishes is on a rack on the wall where everybody can see them and they really don't get used. They're just precious to us. If they ever fell, you know, we'd be really sad because we've sanctified these things. We've set them apart. They're precious to us. They're special to us. And that's what God says he does. With a family, we're one of... Either the husband or the wife is born again, a child of God. God starts pouring out his blessing as if the whole family were saved. Everybody reaps the blessing of having a true believer in the household. And so you need to understand that. If you are a believing wife and you have an unbelieving husband, you're worried about your children, don't worry. You be the godly wife. If it's you, husband, then you be the godly husband and understand that God has sanctified your children. He's set them apart. Because of you, they're going to hear the gospel. Because of you, they're going to be pointed to the word of God. Because of you, they have such spiritual advantage over everyone else that they know who is outside the faith because they are close to God through you. God is pouring out his blessing upon you 
and they reap the benefit of that. And more than that, not only should you not think, oh no, if I stay in this marriage, then the influence here is going to be a corrupting influence on me. It's not. Not if you've resolved to be a godly man or woman. But the other issue here is, if I stay in this marriage, uh, if, if, uh, if I allow my spouse to leave this marriage and don't fight for it, then how will he ever be saved? I mean, it's my responsibility. If she leaves, it's my responsibility to bring her Christ. The only hope that he has of coming to Christ is me. And the Apostle Paul is saying, just, just get rid of the Messiah syndrome. All right? You are not, you can't save anybody. You couldn't even save yourself. And look at what he says in verse, what is it, 16. Uh, no, 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 no. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why that looks wrong. And that's 2 Corinthians. See, I jumped to another place. There he is. Verse uh, 16. He says this. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Answer, you don't. God requires you to be a godly man or a godly woman and leave the salvation of that person up to God. He may use you to bring that person to faith. He may not, and they may leave. Understand that God has called you to trust him. God has called you to peace. And so what about a a couple that is unhappily married? You can't divorce. You're not allowed to divorce. However, if your spouse leaves, then you're not under bondage. You're free to remarry. And that was question four. Question five is this. Is it okay for a single man or woman to marry? You say, well, that's a funny question. Isn't that obvious? Um, In our day, in our culture, uh, that's obvious. In that day and in that culture, it was different. A lot of things were happening. The church was brand new. A lot of pagan ideologies have had crept into the church. Not only that, but there was severe persecution in some places, and it was going to get worse. Some were saying, uh, frankly, that it's more spiritual to remain single. I mean, Jesus was single. Paul was single. I mean, if you're really going to be spiritual, I mean, all of you, uh, all of you married folks, I mean, yeah, you're, you're okay, spiritual, but uh, I mean, if you really want to be spiritual, then you'll be single. You won't get married. You'll give your life to God. You remember when Paul wrote to Timothy in uh, his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, he says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage. Men who forbid marriage. If you're really going to be a godly man, you'll just... You'll be a hermit, or you'll become a monk, or you will become a priest and, and exercise celibacy for the rest of your life. God doesn't require that. And frankly, that's unspiritual. If he has not gifted you to be single, then that's not spiritual. That's hypocrisy. You're just laying yourself open for all kinds of spiritual danger. But some were asking, Is it wrong to marry? Look at verses 25 through 28. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an an opinion as one, by the way, this is an inspired opinion, so it's a little better than any of our opinions. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it's good in view of the present distress that, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not Seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you what? Have not sinned. You've not sinned. It's okay to marry. It's wonderful to marry. In fact, you better get married if God hasn't given you the gift of singleness. It's better to marry than to burn. He's already established that earlier in the chapter. And so be careful here. Don't think that you're going to be more spiritual if you remain single. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, it may very well be the opposite of what is true for you. So it's fine to marry. 
In fact, that's the best thing if God has not gifted you to a life of singleness. Nevertheless, times are hard, he writes, and I want to spare you any unnecessary burden or grief. Look at verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. He's saying, listen, this is, I'm not talking about some law. I'm not laying some heavy legalism on you. I'm just saying in light of the times, right now there's persecution. If you can remain single, if God has gifted you for that, then it's good. It's good. Don't ever think that you're a secondhand Christian or a second-rate Christian um, just because you don't have a husband or a wife. God may just want you to be free. God may want you to be like Rachel Saint. You remember the story? Uh, Nate Saint was the pilot in, uh, with the Ecuador Five with uh, uh, Jim Elliott and those guys. They were down there um, trying to reach the Alka Indians, uh, the, uh, what is it, Wardani, War, what? Well, Donnie, I said Morani in the first service, and somebody said, I don't think that's right. <laughs> think war. They were warriors. War Donnie. <laughs> uh, they were trying to reach them, and, and that's, you know, they were all five speared to death, and it was a, a um, you know, it launched the youth uh, mission movement in the 1950s. An amazing, amazing story. What many people don't know, many people who don't uh, perhaps read missionary biographies very much, is that Nate Saint's sister was down there before any of those guys got there. She was a single lady who gave her life to the Lord, not to be a nun somewhere, but she was in the jungle working with a woman whose name was Dayuma, who had come out of the tribe for her own safety and had come to this uh, sugarcane compound where um, she knew the language. And so Rachel Saint went to her and said, would you please... Remember your language. It's, it, I need to understand your language. I need to learn your language. She was the lady who learned the language so that when the five guys went down there to minister among that tribe, they had someone to teach them how to speak Wardani or Alka. Alka's just easier to say. She gave her life to be single. She stayed single her whole life. And you know what? That was the spiritual thing for her to do. That was her devotion to the Lord. God gifted her to do that. And Paul is saying, look, there's more impetus to do that in in that time because of the persecution. I just, I want you to be free. I don't want you to be worried about if I die, what's going to happen to my wife? If I die, what's going to happen to my children? You may very well die in this atmosphere. And so think about that before you get married. Maybe you just need to postpone for a while. But if you marry, no sin there, no sin. I just want you to be aware of the hardships that you may face because of it. By the way, I skipped over verses 21 through 24, uh, 17 through 24, uh, the whole section there where Paul is just saying, wherever you are right now, whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're free or whether you're a slave, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you're um, whatever it is, whatever it is your state, Don't think that you have to make a major life change just because you came to know Christ. Yes, your your life should change radically in terms of holiness. But in terms of who you are and and, uh, the network of people that you're with in terms of job and uh, and spiritual devotion and all of that stuff, um, not everything needs to change. If you're a slave, be a godly slave. If you're a free man, be a godly free man. If you're a slave and you have an opportunity to be free, then by all means get free, but then be a godly free man. You see what he's saying? Don't think that you've got to make radical changes in your life. You have to make radical external changes in your life because you've become a Christian. That's not true. You just be godly, whether you're single or whether you're married. Whether you're married because you've never been married and have given your life to the Lord or God has not given you opportunity to marry, or maybe you're, you're unmarried, you're divorced, and you hate the fact that that happened, and you tried perhaps to keep it from happening, but it happened anyway, 
Just, just be holy. You don't have to marry. You don't have to become single. You don't have to become a slave. You don't have to become free. You don't have to become uncircumcised. You don't have to be circumcised. Just live for God. All of this is so important, especially for our young people. And so freeing for those of you hearing my voice today who are struggling in difficult marriages or have faced difficult divorces. Is it okay for a single man or woman to get married? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. There is a question that Paul doesn't deal with here in this passage that I think is important for us to consider. What if a husband or wife, husband and wife, who both claim to know the Lord, let's say they've been a part of this church, good church, they've been a part of this church, but secretly, unbeknownst to anyone, their marriage is horrific. Happens, happens. Their marriage is horrific. And one day, one of them says to the other, that's it, I am out of here. I'm done. I'm not going to be married to you anymore. And the divorce starts. And, um, and it's bad. But in the end, here's this woman, she finds herself divorced. It was an unbiblical divorce. It should have never happened. And, 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 and the guy leaves, and he goes and joins a, a church in the neighborhood because he claims to be a Christian. He's going to be a part of a church. And he found some pastor who's going to say, oh, yeah, that's right, you should have divorced. I would have divorced in your situation. That happens a lot. Um, and then she comes to you and she says, um, am I stuck? I mean, I don't have the gift. Uh, and, and I need a husband to look after me, I think. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm just miserable. Um, is it possible for me to remarry? Is it possible for me to remarry? To which I would respond, that's a great question. And I would turn you to your elders. You need to speak to the elders of your church. You need to figure that one out. You need to bring them in on it to help you sort through the details of that terrible thing that happened in your life. This is a hard thing because here's what happens. A lot of times a married couple, this will happen in the church. You'll have a wife typically who stays in the church and now she, she feels trapped, she feels stuck um, or else she's outside the church and this is, this is even more common. She's outside the church but she's a true believer, she's attending somewhere. Um, but she's a part of a church that doesn't have eldership, they don't practice church discipline and there's probably other things that the church is supposed to be that it's not. And she, she not only is stuck in her situation because she can't figure it out, she doesn't have elders to turn to, or she has elders to turn to and she's just afraid and ashamed to even bring the issue up. And I would say, if you're a lady in that situation, or even if you're a man in that situation, if your church is not going to shepherd you in that regard, then you need to find a church that is going to shepherd you. And if you find yourself in that complicated situation and you just can't unscramble that egg and make any biblical sense, as best you can tell, you understand 1 Corinthians 7 and you understand the teaching of the Lord and the Gospels and you just can't figure it out because it may be really difficult, then you need to get into a church where the elders will help you unscramble that thing and tell you what will be most pleasing to the Lord. That's why the church is here. And let's face it, some cases are really complicated. And it's not intuitive what God requires or allows in such a case. In these cases, it, it may be possible after much time, much prayer, and under the guidance of the elders of your church to seek remarriage in the Lord. But don't do it alone. You will have such greater peace knowing that the godly men who lead your church helped you through that process and brought you to that conclusion so that you don't have to wonder for the rest of your life, did I make the right choice? Was God pleased with that? You can know. You can know. And cases like this happen. Frankly, when cases like this happen, they're brought to the elders. Sometimes we go, I don't know. Um. For example, I have a friend who lives in California, and, uh, and he always likes to spar with me. He's a, he's a former lawyer. He's a lawyer turned pastor, right? 
a brilliant, brilliant guy and uh, just a dear friend. And uh, so he's an, he's an elder in his church now, and he says, okay, I got one for you. So a couple, this is a true story, a couple uh, comes to the church, and, uh, and here's what we discover. Uh, they've been living together for over a decade. They have children together. They share a bank account. They both own the home together. And, um, uh, but they're unbelievers. And then one day the husband says, because he has some of a Christian out, uh, upbringing, and I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he was thinking, you know, the children need to have some Christian teaching. But he says, he says honey, you know what we need? We need to go to church. And so this unbelieving husband and an unbelieving wife come to church. They come to this brother's church. And uh, lo and behold, it wasn't very long before she was gloriously saved. And her whole outlook on life changed. And now there's a problem. She comes to the elders and she says, listen, the state of California is not like most other states in the union. They don't recognize common law marriage. And so as far as the civil authority is concerned, we're just a couple of immoral people living together. We are not married. We're not married in the eyes of the state. Furthermore, we've never been married in the eyes of the church or before God. We've never covenanted with one another. We've never promised to stay together until death do us part. So help us God. And so we're not married in the eyes of God. Furthermore, I'm a believer now, and as I'm coming to understand marriage, divorce, and remarriage, I have the additional complication that my husband's an unbeliever so that even if I wanted to marry him, I couldn't because we'd be unequally yoked. So, elders, what should I do? And this brother said, what would you do? And I said, Charlie's number is 817... (laughs) Actually, when he said that to me, I knew he was being serious. And I said, oh, look at the time. It's time for me to go back to school. You know, just turn the car around, take me home. Um, Some cases are really complicated. And you can't just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 16 and say, there's your answer. Or Matthew 19, there's your answer. What do you do? And cases like this are happening all the time because God is at work bringing people to himself. And when it happens, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Even between husband and wife sometimes. All I'm saying is there are some marriage issues that are so complex that you're just going to need wisdom, the wisdom and the authority of the elders of your church to wade through it all and make a decision that will have some authority and be pleasing to the Lord. That's what the church is here for. Oh, we have such a low view of the local church. But having a high view of the local church, having a biblical view of the local church would save us from the tragedies that result from difficult and complex situations many times. Last question. What if you are a believer and you've already blown it by getting an unbiblical divorce and you've complicated it by remarrying as well, which is strictly forbidden by the Lord? But, but there you are. Maybe you've done that twice and this is your third marriage. What do I do now? Hmm. The only answer to that question is this. Realize and what you did was wrong, and take your shame and your disgrace to the Lord, as we should for every other kind of sin, and humbly confess it before the Lord and genuinely repent in your heart before him. And he clearly says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. You say, even this one? Yep, even that one. You say, well, what would repentance look like? That's a good question. What will... Outward repentance look like in this scenario? Well, genuine repentance for someone in that circumstance will be demonstrated by this. Not by divorcing your present husband and going back to one of the others you were married to, but rather by your undaunted resolve to live in covenant faithfulness with the person you are presently married to. That's what will bring glory to God. That's what will bring glory to God. 
Be faithful where you are. Be faithful where you are. Choose to live ruled by the word of God rather than by your feelings. And don't listen to people who are giving you all the Oprah-fied advice, all about your happiness, and don't you have a right to be fulfilled in your life? That's not the question. The question is this. In this case, where I am right now, in this circumstances, what will be pleasing to the Lord? Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. What's your ambition? What motivates you? What moves you? What is driving you in your marriage? Maybe the problem in your marriage is you, because you're striving for things that God is not giving you. You lust and you do not have, so you're angry. You're frustrated, which is not a biblical term. It's just angry. You're sinfully angry, and you need to repent. That's the real issue. Marriage was designed to be a wonderful thing. It was wonderful in the garden. It's wonderful for every Christian marriage where the husband and wife are both living for God, putting the interests of the other person ahead of their own. They're walking in the Spirit. They're demonstrating true biblical love by giving whatever it is that they have that the other person needs, knowing simply that God wants them to, and by addressing sin in a biblical manner, whenever it comes up, whether it's my sin or hers, addressing it in a biblical manner, and then going back and applying biblical love again. Those marriages are full of joy, not perfection, not sinless, not without grief sometimes, but full of joy. Because there are two sinful people who are walking in the Spirit. And then you know what? It doesn't matter what happens in that marriage. I mean, think of Nick Canariato, right? Isn't that a great story? He leaves this church, goes to California. The, the girl of his dreams agrees to marry him. He gets married on their honeymoon night. She has a stroke. And his response, if this is the kind of worship that God calls me to, then bring it on. I love God, and I love my wife, and nothing will make me change. There are many other examples of this through history. For example, Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, we call him. His middle initial was B. B.B. Warfield, if you don't know, those of you who are theologically minded know and love B.B. Warfield. He's a world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for almost 34 years until his death on February 16th, 1921. And so his marriage obviously happened during the late 1800s. Many people are aware of his famous book, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. It's a great book. If you're, again, theologically minded, it's worth reading. What most people don't know is that in 1876, at the age of 25, he married Annie Pierce Kincaid and took a honeymoon to Germany. Now, Late 1800s, the only way you get to Germany is by boat. And so they're on boat, and they're headed toward Europe. A fierce storm breaks out. Annie, who apparently goes up on deck, is struck by lightning. They're on their honeymoon. And she's paralyzed for the rest of her life. After caring for her for nearly 39 years, Warfare Field laid her to rest in 1915. And it said, because of her extraordinary needs, Warfield seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during all those years of marriage. And yet God used him powerfully. We do what we do because we want what we want, folks. Do we want to glorify God? Or do we want to live for our own pleasure? Here's the best thing. Live for your own pleasure in the glory of God. Let your passion be single. My desire to be fulfilled in this life and my desire to glorify God, let them be one. That I might find my joy in pursuing the glory of God in my marriage. God will do astounding things. Another great example is Robertson McQuilkin, who was the president of Columbia University for many years, godly man. 
his wife contracted Alzheimer's. And for a long time, he just kept being president of that university and ministering to her as best he could. He realized eventually that that wasn't going to work anymore as her disease caused her mind to deteriorate. And he writes this in his book. uh, It's a great book. came out a few years ago called A Promise Kept. He says, Eventually, I had to approach the board of trustees with the need to begin searching for my successor. I told them that when Muriel need me full time, she would have me. When the time came, the decision was firm, and it didn't take any heavy-duty calculations. Soon after the decision was announced, I wrote a letter to our constituency. He writes, 22 years is a long time, but then again, it can be shorter than one anticipates, and oh, how do you say goodbye to friends you do not wish to leave? The decision to come to Columbia was one of the most difficult I have ever made in my life. The decision to leave 22 years later, though painful, was one of the easiest. Let me explain. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing health for about 12 years. And so far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is uncontented most of the time. She is, she is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search for me when I leave home. And so it's clear to me she needs me now, full time. Perhaps it would help you if you understood. It would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared in chapel at the time of the announcement of my resignation. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health until death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with this, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all of these years. If I cared for her for another 40 years, I would still not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be a grim and stoic thing, but there's more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of uh, continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person as this. Beloved, that's marriage. That's marriage. And you young people who are thinking about getting married, this is what it means. Until death do us part. This is an example of a man who who lived in marriage, loved in marriage, is devoted to be godly in marriage. Went through extraordinary difficulties in marriage. But in his mind, he never once made a sacrifice. This is just what he agreed to from the beginning. And this is how it would end. That's the way marriage is supposed to be. That's the kind of marriage that greatly honors and magnifies the Lord. Living together, one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, work of God, until death do us part. How many times have I had people come to me and say, how long have you been married? 23 years. 23 years? I mean, as as if that's unheard of. And today's culture, maybe it is. But people don't stay married long anymore. And the people who don't stay married have horrific stories of how difficult life was. It doesn't have to be that way. God has given us everything we need to know how to live with the person that he's given us. 
and whether they are loving and gracious and accepting or whether they're something else. God has called us to live in such a way that magnifies the glory of Jesus Christ who married, frankly, a cantankerous bride. That would be you and me, by the way. Fickle, wandering, sometimes devoted, sometimes not, sometimes in love with her husband, usually bored, unfulfilled, sometimes flaming with passion, and usually just dull, wondering why we ever did this in the first place. And yet his love continues, never wavers. And that's the way we're to live. How do you know that? Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. Another way of saying that is simply this. God created you to show the world what God is like. God created you to show the world what Christ is like. God created you to show the world what the gospel is like. And you get to do that in marriage. What a privilege. What an honor that the Lord would bestow on us this gift. God's glory is beautifully magnified. And the joyful marriages of two sinners who are resolved to walk in the Spirit. Isn't that right? Isn't that wonderful? And the other thing we get from this is simply this, that the complicated questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage are all met head-on by God's sufficient and relevant Word. That's why we love the Bible so much. We are a blessed people. And those of us who know the Lord and have a godly spouse know the joy of marriage. Praise God for that and live it. Show those who are around you will see what Christ is like. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for this time and thanksgiving. We are undeserving of all of the gifts you've bestowed on us, but oh, so thankful, Lord, that you have been gracious Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And so we praise you, and we give you thanks for it. We ask you, Father, to help us to honor you in our marriages and help our young people as they contemplate marriage in the future. Oh, Father, I pray that they would go in with their eyes wide open to what you call them to do and how to love in a way that pleases you. We give you praise for it now, Father, in the name of our Savior, Jesus.